On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Colin Redimer about Thomas Traherne and Christian ethics. So we cover all sorts of topics like who in the world is Thomas Traherne? Why should we even care about him? Uh, what are his thoughts on virtue? What, is, what does he think virtue is itself? What are the powers and affections of the soul? What does he think about habituation? Is this a Thomistic concept? Are the theological virtues infused or not? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we're a podcast that's dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And when we talk about serious thinking, uh, we want to keep a couple of things in mind. So we've tried to describe what that looks like and stir us up by way of reminder to, to a sort of like intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And so, I, I mean, I think charity is pretty straightforward and obvious. Like we, we want to treat other people with respect and honor and actually understand their arguments and what, they, what they're saying and do it in a way that they would say, yep, that's me. Uh, curiosity, uh, not in the vice sort of sense where we're trying to like um, get into stuff we shouldn't be getting into, but it's sort of the idea of just like being interested in other people and saying like, hey, yeah, tell me why you think that. Um, being m- more open and transparent with others and not trying to just like always constantly draw boundaries, but try to understand like, hey, maybe we, we agree here on some central doctrines like the ecumenical creeds. Um, let's have an openness to wondering wisely why you think the way you think. And then obviously the critical thinking, I think that's pretty straightforward. Though me and Brandon, who started the podcast, were Baptist, and we kind of looked around and said, you know what, Baptists suck at thinking, so let's let's push that <laughs> forward. Um, we, we need more people who actually care about this. And then uh, cheerfully confessional. I mean, there's a, a couple of ways you can go about that. Um, a lot of people who get into confessionalism, I feel like they come from like fundamentalist sort of circles, and they trade the fundamentalist doctrine, but they never trade the fundamentalist sort of spirit. And so they're still curmudgeons. And we want to say, nope, you don't have to be a curmudgeon. You can actually be cool and cheerful about what you confess. And yeah, so that's that. Uh, Now today on the podcast, you guys are going to have a lot of fun today because we've got Colin Redimer with us. And it's we're going to be talking about Thomas uh, Treherne. And I totally butchered it probably, but no one will ever know because you probably don't know who that is. So that, that works in my favor. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun because he's got a, a Colin did, uh, I guess, editing of a book with an, a really nice introduction, actually, that was really helpful. I like the way Colin writes. It's 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 fun. Uh, a lot of people write boring and he does not do that. So uh, it opens up the topic, uh, pushes you to think. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Colin, before we get started talking about Thomas, uh, not Thomas Aquinas, obviously, though, we should maybe who, who well, gets to be called he'll Thomas? Up. He'll come up. Okay. Uh, so... Before we do this, tell me a little bit about yourself. People who don't know you, they've never heard Colin, Colin Radimer's name before. Give me context for who you are. And then once we've done that, just give me a little bit of like background on like how did you stumble upon Thomas Traherne and, and, and get interested in him? Sure, yeah. I'm uh, I'm the proud owner of a Basset Hound, and I was at the A's reverse boycott on Tuesday night, and I took the famous photo of uh, this character, K. Hal Connolly, which you can look up on Twitter as he was running across the field and got arrested. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. I, 
I did not know that. Uh, I I deeply respect uh, the the reverse boycott. I am I'm from St. Louis. I was never really a Rams fan, but the whole fiasco with uh, them getting basically you know the league basically trying to like I don't know get get out of St. Louis w- with all sorts of shady ways. I'm like this is what's happening in Oakland again. Well, and the so the genius of the reverse boycott for people who aren't following it, you know, everybody's been boycotting the A's all season because our owner stinks. But uh, this, I think it was Tuesday night. Yeah, maybe it was. Yeah. Anyway, whenever the reverse boycott was, was the one day in the season where the ticket receipts were being donated directly to charity. They're not going to the owner. <laughs> and so they like social media this thing and, and all like it was like 30,000 people. It was like a playoff game. It was totally nuts. They were not prepared for it. Everybody was there. There was a wave that went on for 15 minutes and the wave was invented at the Oakland Coliseum. It might be the last time yeah. they ever have one there. Um, yeah. And then in the fifth inning. Uh, there was a moment when a text went out to all these people and everybody stood silently together for like two minutes. And then they started chanting, sell the team. <laughs> and it was like they they couldn't even hear the pitch count on the field. They had to like, you know, pause things. It was it was a really wild night. And that's actually that's the thing that your listeners should know the most about me. You know, I, I, I totally agree. Totally. agree. <laughs> so tell me about the other stuff you do, the boring stuff. Oh, I see. OK. Um, yeah, I'm the vice president at the Davenant Institute, and uh, at Davenant we advance and renew Christian wisdom for the contemporary church, and I am also a professor at St. Mary's College of California in the philosophy department, uh, teaching the great books and, and uh, some other, other type classes out there. And then I also uh, am the education director at American Reformer, I'll throw that in there as well. Cool. So, Well, since I'm are... in the spirit of cheekiness, I mean, I didn't know you guys were allowed to read great books in California. Yeah, it is true. There's, uh, you know, Jess, Jessica Hooten Wilson just got hired uh, to be the head of the great books and classical education department, I think, at Pepperdine. So there you go. It's, you know, it's alive and well. It's a great time uh, to be alive in California. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, no, I mean, actually, so St. Mary's has a really storied great books program. The integral program is the sort of great books major and there's really very few of these at the college, and all they take is great book classes. I think we have like 50 majors. Um, I have taught in that, but that's not where most of my teaching gets done. Most of my teaching is more gen ed. So it's sort of great books for business majors, you yeah, know, yeah. great books for math majors or whatever, education majors. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that program has been suffering for years, but even that program, it was founded by a guy named Haggerty who, who was on faculty at Columbia and was influenced by the guys at Chicago and St. John's and then brought it to St. Mary's. So there's some, you know, there's some arguments to be made that St. Mary's is actually, you know, like maybe the third or the fourth great books program oh, wow. in the country, uh, right up there with St. John's. And I think we still are to this day, the only college that uh, students can transfer into or out of from St. John's. Hmm. It's the only college in the country that has a pure transfer requirement if you're doing the great books major at St. Mary's. Fascinating. Because the, they were modeled off of one another. I don't know if that's still the case, you know, in the future, but it has yeah. been the case my whole career. That's pretty cool. And then, obviously, yeah. I love Davenant, um, uh, and I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the cool stuff that Davenant's doing. Um, you're over oh, what? I they're. I, I I know we're going to talk about traumas to her in, in a minute, but, like, you're over there, what, a- academic sort of stuff, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so as the vice president, the the first thing I was really brought in to do was help launch Davenant Hall. So you can go find out more at DavenantHall.com. Davenant Hall, we are a 
refounding of the medieval university for the digital frontier. Uh, you can get a master's degree, the equivalent of a master's in theology. We call it a master's of Protestant letters. Uh, it's about a two-year degree, fo mostly focused on academic stuff. Um, you know, you're not going to take any survey courses. You're going to be dealing just strictly with great books to the sources. You're going to be dealing with original languages. And uh, if you did that in two years, you know, you'd, you'd be paying just under $10,000. And an equivalent degree from, you know, other places is going to be closer to you know, more like $40,000. Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I've audited the course at Davenant, so if you guys are listening, I, I highly recommend what they're doing there. Um, I know oh, I'll be teaching Plato this fall, so come come take Plato with me. You've got all sorts of options of where you could do education, but I don't know anyone who's doing it as well as Davenant because they actually care about the subject material, and you're going to read primary sources that it. Like, don't waste your time going to some place where you're just going to watch some lectures from somebody and go through the motions and read some like book that's been out for two years that's going to go out of print here in the next two years read the stuff that's been here for the last couple thousand years and it's actually made an impact um, yeah i mean read, read the stuff that uh that got augustine going you know that's right that's though you I know the, though you know i, I am the uh, the plato hater online so uh <laughs> of course didn't you Wait. write something about not liking plato or uh, not no, teaching Plato. Yeah, yeah yeah i have a i have an essay in reforming classical education that is basically making the argument that we should not be teaching Plato to children. And then I had a follow-up because one of the only reviews I think of that book focused all of its attention on me and talked about how horrible my essay was. So I wrote a response on Ad Fontes, uh, which, which, you know, got, got some further traction. So I, I, I like Plato a lot. I, I think that, um, it's the kind of thing anybody who's going to be a pastor needs to wrestle with in the same way that they should wrestle with Nietzsche. Yeah, you know they should wrestle with everything. You know, if you're going to be a pastor, you got to really know your stuff. But you know, you see all these classical educators that are like, "Well, that's really what it means to give students like a good classical Christian education." So we're going to have them all read the Apology, but the Apology is caustic. You know, like mm -hmm. I have friends who won't even teach it to undergrads because they think it just kind of it's like throwing acid on your soul. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but you know, maybe maybe the the one defense of these people is that most people don't don't really know how to teach it, so it doesn't really do that much harm. You know, you just kind of it goes in one ear and out yeah, the other, yeah, and maybe yeah. that's the best thing that you can do. Well, so obviously we we could talk about a whole bunch of stuff. So <laughs> let's tell me a little bit about Thomas Traherne. Give me like the like that thirty thousand foot view of like who in the world is he? Uh, <clears throat> what made you interested in him? Like how did you even get like find him? Sort of stuff. Yeah, Thomas Traherne uh, was the greatest shortstop in the history of the Oakland Athletics. He played when they were still in Philadelphia um, and, you know, had a career, uh, you know, point point two three uh, batting average. It was just a really incredible guy, and he happened to also be a, a Christian ethicist. I, I did not realize that there was a namesake that played for Oakland. <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. I'm just trying to, you know, I've got a thing going, Jordan, and so I'm <laughs> trying right. to, I'm trying to go with the, the. You can't see me, listeners. I'm wearing my A's jersey, so I'm still reliving the glory from the other day when we beat the Rays. Um, all right, Tom, Tom Stern. Let, like, here's who he really is. He was a 17th century um, pastor. I think that's really the best way to identify him. Um, but that's not how anybody knows him. So, because like most pastors, right? If you're a, if you're a good like. If you're a really bad pastor, people are going to remember you. <laughs> you know, you might go down in history. But if you're a good pastor, it's actually very likely that you will 
just live to be forgotten, right? You'll just yeah. be one of those. Like, I, I remember, I don't even remember these guys' names, but I just remember this pastor who we had at the church that I grew up in, and he was just a good pastor. And I just remember weeping the day that he sort of mentioned that he was retiring and moving on. Um, and in many such cases, right? I mean, I remember finding the pastor who baptized me and like Facebook, you know, when Facebook was first thing and being like, thanks for baptizing me. And he's like, don't thank me. Thank the Lord. And I was like, wow, it's <laughs> good stuff. So he was a pastor in the 17th century. He's famous in as much as he's famous. He's kind of very, very micro famous, um, for two things. Uh, one is he was a poet. And so if you're familiar with the metaphysical poets, uh, John Donne is the most famous metaphysical poet, but, um, you know, William Vaughn, there's others. And he's, you know, he's like second string metaphysical poet. So maybe he makes the top 10 of the metaphysical poets, which is a movement of English poetry that was sort of influenced by, you know, Cambridge Platonism and things like that um, in in that era. Um, but... But also, he's sort of famous for writing uh, the Centuries of Meditation. And so this this is a book that he didn't publish in his lifetime. It's just a set of sort of Christian meditations, thoughts about the Christian life, thoughts about theology, philosophy, what it is to be a human. And uh, both of those were more or less his, his sort of quote-unquote books of poetry were never published as books of poetry. A few of his poems were published in some of his other works. And the Centuries of Meditation were published after his life. So he was like completely forgotten. And then uh, there's a guy, the story goes, it's not really a true story, but it's a good story. And so good stories should be told even if they're not true. Um, you know, he he finds these like manuscripts that Thomas Traherne had written and nobody knows what they are. And he buys them for a song in a book barrow in like 1900. And then uh you know, by doing some research, and this part is true, by doing some research, figures out who the guy is, that it's Thomas Traherne, who had published two books in his lifetime. Uh, but these are his poetry and the, sort of his notes that become the center of meditation. Realize these are actually better than the stuff the guy had written, in his, in his opinion. Republishes them. And of course, that's a good story, right? That like, oh, we rediscovered this thing. And so he becomes a really big deal in the early 1900s. That coincidentally is when there's a little upsurging of sort of, uh, conf you know, committed, uh, you know, believing Anglicanism yeah. led by C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, some others, uh, Charles Williams, and they are all big fans of him. And so there's a sort of cottage industry that that bubbles up around the 1920s to the 1940s. And uh, and that's why people really remember him in his lifetime, though. Again, he was he was a extremely highly educated pastor. And he really wrote two books under his own name. One was on Roman forgeries, which is a polemical text against the Roman, the claims of the Roman Catholic Church. Hmm. And uh, no one read it in his lifetime. You know, he just like published this book and it was like, you know, fell on deaf ears. Uh, published a few hundred copies, of, uh, whatever. And then he wrote and died right before the publication of a second volume, which was supposed to be his magnum opus called The Christian Ethics. And uh, it was published right after his death, also right after his patron's death. And so nobody really paid any attention to it. And actually that was even true in the 1900s, early 1900s when they had this revival and suddenly people started caring about Thomas Stern because they fell in love with his poetry and his centuries of meditation, which are sort of prose poems, right? Is what people call them as a genre. And so nobody really, I mean, a very few people kind of went back to his uh, philosophical works and, and tried working through them. And, uh, how did I get into him? You know, I, I got into him 
really by by chance. Um, you know, many of your readers, I bet, actually have heard the name Thomas Traherne, and they don't know it. And the way that they've heard it is that it is mentioned in C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. He's one of the thinkers that Lewis is like, oh, yeah, this guy is, you know, you should go read this guy. And then secondarily, I think he's also mentioned in at least one of the fictional works, I, I believe. Um, I think it's in the Space Trilogy. And he's further mentioned, uh, and, and it might be in another um, nonfiction work by Lewis, but if you go read his letters, anybody, any of your listeners who've read C.S. Lewis's letters, you know, Lewis, like many people gets who are famous, not, not people like you and me, like, you know, real people <laughs> that matter, uh, gets these letters from fans that say things like, you know, your work is great. Who else should I read? Like, and I, I have, I have actually, I've never heard this about my work, but I've heard this when I teach C.S. Lewis, which is yeah. funny. He still gets that vibe, right? People read him. I, I never forget. There's a, a kid who was not a Christian. I think I had taught, uh, you know, mere Christianity, the abolition of man. And he, he's like, where, where else can I go to read this? Like, I want to read more of this. I don't want all this other crap that people give me. <laughs> I, want, I want this, you know? And so he would respond by saying, you should go read Thomas Traherne. Um, he said Thomas Traherne was the greatest writer in the English language. Uh, he, he thought his prose was incredible as well as his thinking. So he's sort of extremely formative. Everybody knows that, you know, Lewis is formed by, you know, somebody like Plato or, or because Plato's extremely famous. Everybody knows he's, in, he's formed by uh, G.K. Chesterton because he kind of writes about that in more, in more public settings. Um, I would say he's one of the major influences on C.S. Lewis that nobody knows about. I'm a C.S. Lewis guy, so I had kind of known about him. And then when I knew that the Davenant Institute had this library of early English Protestant thinkers... And I was one of the, I think I was the first employee at the Davenant Institute. Um, uh, I, I just knew I wanted to be involved and, and I loved what they were up to. And I said, you know, what about Traherne? So, yeah, no, that's awesome. So you've mentioned his poetry and I would imagine a good chunk of people who are more on like the intellectual side of things, particularly with philosophy and theology, probably suck at poetry. Like, how in the world does poetry get like, like where where does that come from? Should should pastors or intellectual thinkers like should they care more about poetry? I know this is totally random, but this is just what's coming to my mind. No, no, not random at all. Yeah, you absolutely should care more about poetry. I mean, po you know, I'll, I'll, this is like an, actually kind of a good teaser because the second volume, the book we're talking about today, is the first volume of of Traherne's uh, Christian Ethics. Second volume should be out in October. Hoping to have it out by October 10th. And the whole introduction is going to be on uh, on Christian poetics and how it relates to things like technology that we might not expect and why it should matter to us. Um, and why Traherne, even in his work as a philosopher, is really doing something sort of poetical. So, um, you know, one of the ways that I talk about poetry is... it. I, so I'm, I'm an Aristotelian... You know, I I think that even even though I'm I'm aware of some critiques that are are pretty effective, it is actually a really helpful exercise to think about breaking things out in terms of the contemplative and the active, and um, and and therefore, if we think about sort of what is the vocation that humans are given uh, from the beginning that I think is still with us now, what is our vocation? It's contemplative and it's active, um. And, and the, the primordial vocation of the contemplative life is philosophy. It's to sort of 
ask these questions and seek for these bigger answers, even if we don't necessarily have the answers. And the primordial vocation of the active life is poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, all human acts are in their origin linguistic. Um, and that's that's probably hard to see. And so we'll just take the quick test case that I like to use of like, you know, imagine you've been to the doctor, right, Jordan? Of course. They take the little, they take a little hammery thing. Oh yeah. They whack, they whack you on the leg. What do you do? Your knee's supposed to go up. Yeah, and if your nerves are working and yeah. your muscles and everything, then then you're you kick your leg, right? Yeah. Okay. Now imagine, I put a bucket full of hot coals in front of your foot, and you don't know it. And the doctor, because we got your blindfold on you. You whack your knee, you kick the bucket, and these coals fall down and they land on, you know, I don't know, dynamite or something. The whole place explodes. All right. Now, we don't blame you for that, right? Even though you sort of did do it. That's right. Right. And so the reason for this is that that's not technically a human action. Um, And this is, you know, this is like philosophically the same you know, root of the reason why we make distinctions between things like murder and manslaughter. Because a human action is attributable to the person because they have a certain thought and then a choice which flows from the thought, right? And if we just whack your leg, that isn't action. There's something happening, but it's not a human action. So human actions always begin with a certain... Um, uh, you know, a, with, with a thought and, and the structure of those thoughts are, are linguistic. And so poetry is the primordial human vocation because you have to sort of articulate to yourself, at least in some way, what it is that you're going to go do before you choose to go do it. And that articulation is a poem. And so when we talk about poetry, people sort of think you're talking about sonnets and stuff. And I am. I mean, I love that stuff. And that's what Traherne was. But philosophically there is a really close relationship between being able to control your language and being able to control your thought and that, and that's why you know like totalitarian regimes i think are so terrifying because we all kind of get that right this is why freedom of speech is sort of important mm-hmm. these are all related related problems related concepts cool well that was helpful uh one other thing before i get dig into Traherne's actually like his thought in the introduction to the book, you have this really nice little phrase that you've pulled from somebody where the idea was scuttling in and out of doorways too tall for us. Mm. And I'd love for you just to tease out the sort of the idea that's going on behind that because I thought that was really profound when I read that because I don't think I've ever seen that um, before. And I just really like the way you put it in there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the um, you know that <clears throat> that passage is from. Uh, Hitchens, I never remember which Hitchens, the good Hitchens, the the Christian Hitchens, Peter Hitchens. Um, it's not the other one's bad. I don't really know the other. Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, Yeah. I actually, wait, is that the other one? That's the bad one, right? He's the atheist, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I meant. I meant atheist and Christian. I didn't mean good and bad. All of your atheist listeners, I apologize. (laughs) I didn't, I wasn't trying to, anyway, um, so Peter Hitchens wrote that in uh, in First Things, and it was about uh, the Church of England before and after World War One. Actually, uh, it's a really fantastic essay called "A Church That Was." Highly recommend you read it. Um, you know the 
and he says, you know, we live in the ruins of a, of a lost civilization, scuttling in and out of doorways too tall for us. So the the image is sort of tying in the kind of questions that we see bubbling up in the internet land of like, you know, don't live in the pods and eat the bugs. Like we are living sort of a bug life, you know. Um, but it's tying that into this sense that there's something lost. There's a there's a way that the world used to be. You know, I often, when I when these sentiments come up, one of the things that I tell my students, because they always want to go study abroad and spend a fortune and go into debt, to, like my St. Mary's students, to like go study abroad in England and, and Europe. And I always just tell them, you know, Europe is dead. It, if you go there, do not expect to see what you've seen if you read books and fell in love with it. You know, you, you should go there, do go there. But notice that you're looking at two different things, right? One is just like the worst parts of American culture or worse, right? Because it's like weird Soviet architecture and just like pathetic, you know, humans. It's like people living in the worst possible conditions, frankly. Yeah. And then there's these, there's like, there's like this skeleton, this like rotting carcass of this like beautiful, majestic place that, you know, that, that and you're like, wow, this is amazing. You see like the old aqueduct, like running through Lille, you know, in Northern France. And Lille is just this like post-industrial wasteland, just like, you know, Oakland and, and any other number of places. But you can see these moments of sort of this other thing that used to exist. And his whole essay is trying to bring that to the surface and help you see that that there's this other way that things used to be. And so I then, you know, try to use that in the introduction to think about, you know, this experience I had of visiting the Hagia Sophia um, in, uh, in Constantinople. And... Uh, and, you know, now it's a mosque and the mosque is sort of like just kind of taped on on top of this extremely beautiful, amazing church. And there's a certain door that the emperor was supposed to be the only one that walked through. You stand in this door and you just realize how small you are, which I think is sort of the point. Right. And it was probably the point also for the emperor that there's something about this architecture that humbles us, that, that keeps us in mind of who we are and where we are. And, you know, going back and looking like, dude, this book was written by like. A, like a random college educated pastor in the middle of like incredible civil strife and an incredibly horrible life with very little material comfort. And here we are with like the vast, you know, benefits of technology and like, you know, we're podcasting from across the country and then like, you know, life couldn't possibly be better in a material sense. And there's been peace for my entire lifetime and like my, my parents' entire lifetime and yet, you know, what are we doing with it? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, you, you going and do the doing the wave at the Oakland Coliseum. I, I'm doing the wave at the <laughs> Oakland Coliseum, man. I'm going. I'm doing the reverse boycott. We're trying to get the A's to stay in Oakland. Okay. <laughs> Fisher, owner of the A's, if you're listening, if you're a listener of the London Lyceum, which I know you probably are. Yeah. Because let's be honest, it's a big deal. Sell the A's. All I right, mean, stay in Oakland. If if he sells the A, if he gets some cash, at least he can help continue to fund all the stuff that we're doing here. He he's should. A, he's our main source of income. I know, I know, and so I apologize actually for you know alienating your <laughs> your mega donor. That's right. Um, so Traherne on virtue. Um, what does he think virtue is? What does he think the end of virtue is? How does this like does his ideas map on to a more Aristotelian account, or is it unique in particular ways? Yeah, no, those are those are great questions. You know, I, um, 
so you know tr- just like everything else right so like i'm sure your your listeners probably know that aquinas is historically read as like an aristotelian that's the thing that you do if you're like an aquinas dude is you recognize that he's the guy who recovered aristotle and made aristotle palatable for the west and if you're an augustine guy augustine is the platonist and so he's the guy who like took the insights of plato and judoed them into like good christian juju and then like moved forward and, you know, he came before Aquinas and then, and then, and then Luther came and he sort of recovered Aquinas. So maybe Protestantism is a little more Platonic and anyway, people do these things. But then of course, like if you go one layer deeper into academia, you know, like the cool thing nowadays is to make arguments about how Aquinas is actually a Platonist yeah. and like, you know, my dissertation is on how we can do like this weird Aristotelian reading of, of, of Augustine. And so... If you you can do the same basic thing with Traherne is on the surface people tend to lump him in with the Cambridge Platonists mm-hmm. and so they they think of him as a Platonist. That's probably fair, you know, in the same way that it's fair to say that Augustine is Platonist. Of course, he's familiar with Thomas Aquinas too, and he's familiar with Aristotle. I mean, everybody who's educated in the 1700s in Oxford, which he was, uh, got three degrees from Brasenose, uh, three degrees from Oxford, I think. I think they were from Brazenos. I know one. I know his initial degree was Brazenos, uh, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong too. But who cares? The dead language, right? I mean, the whole civilization's dying, right, Jordan? Um, so, the uh, you know, I, I people tend to read him as a Platonist. I read him as as more Aristotelian, and my argument would be that most people who read him as a Platonist do so because they're reading his Christian his uh, his meditations, they're reading his poetry they're not reading his ethics Hmm. and his ethics when you read it is clearly influenced by aristotle um that's almost indisputable if you read the first couple of books which which you have you know like aristotle begins his treatise in the nicomachean ethics and i think in the eudamian and magna moralia by being like well what's the point of life point of life is happiness Okay, what is happiness defines happiness happiness and activity of the soul in accordance with virtue what is virtue virtues mean between two vices um that structure is like identical to the opening that you get in the christian ethics that Traherne has so that's interesting right which shows that it it's not it's not like he's just a pure aristotelian he's yeah. just muddying the waters right it's like he's he's do, like allowing the christian synthesis to continue carrying forward similarly um there's another scholar, uh, Gladys Wade, who's wrong about all kinds of things, but uh, is is very convincing, in particular because she's one of these people who perpetuates the myth of, like, he was completely forgotten, no one knew who he was, and then this guy randomly bought his works, like, in a yeah. wheelbarrow, you know, and they were going to be burned the next day if he didn't buy them, which you're like, that's clearly not true. I mean, you know, the guy bought them and didn't know exactly who they were and then figured it out. Um so, but she she makes a good argument, um, very compelling essay that I found, where she compares like passages of his prose in certain sections with passages of Thomas Aquinas's Summa, and he's not quite copying and pasting. It's more of a paraphrase, but it's very close, hmm. and uh, and and mostly unsighted. And so this makes me think. He's a very good student of Aquinas, even when he's disagreeing. But of course, this is not intended as a scholarly book, right? This was written for like every man. Uh, it, I don't know that it would have been accessible to every man, you know, even when he wrote it. Um, probably a little bit more so than it is nowadays. Um, 
because weirdly, even you know, we tend to think of like 1700s or 17th century as like very poorly educated. But and I think I have a footnote in here. Like they actually had a much higher literacy rate than we would expect. And when they said literacy, they meant like Book of Common Prayer and you know King James Bible. Yeah. Um, which I'm not trying to say like King James Bible nowadays. If you can read it, you're probably more educated than other people. That's true. What I mean is the uh, the vocabulary itself and the syntax is actually more advanced than like the NIV is um, just on a, a strict, like how many words do they use and, and whatnot. Yeah. So, um, so anyhow, I, you know, he, the readership was advanced and this is probably a little bit more advanced, but it's not intended to be like an academic treatise where he's like, let me tell you exactly where I'm in disagreement with this scholar or that scholar. So I do. I, I yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, so we're, we're talking a little bit about Thomas and I'm wondering, he's got stuff on habituation theological virtues like uh, what does he think about habituation is it Thomistic are the theological virtues infused in any sense because um, I think those are to me interesting questions yeah yeah so you know he he does think so I'll just sort of to tie off that last conversation he thinks happiness is the point of life he thinks happiness he's trying in his virtue ethics to like to articulate what, how you can recover virtue ethics and maintain your belief in, you know, salvation by, by faith through grace, you know, all that stuff. And that's a tricky one. And, and obviously Aquinas comes to mind immediately. Start having that conversation. Um, cause it's a question about how do you recover Aristotle, right? And the Aristotelian tradition. So he actually says, um, Virtue in general is a habit of the soul by force of which we attain happiness. So like it's, it's a, you know, virtue is habituated, uh, for him. And he also then says, and then that can be acquired or infused. And, um, and he says, you know, if it's infused, then what that means is that you haven't had to choose it or consent to it. It's just kind of given to you. And so, therefore, it's better when it's habituated hmm. um, because, and actually, I mean, that would actually be an Aristotelian position. So, again, this is me sort of reading him as an Aristotelian in opposition to the Platonist readings of him. Uh, because, you know, Aristotle would say, for example, we shouldn't praise someone. And this is one of, I think, Aristotle's most admirable arguments, right? Don't praise somebody if they're faster than somebody else, but they didn't have to train. So if you're just like born with extremely long legs, you know, I'm a pretty tall guy. We've met Jordan. Like, I, I don't know if I could beat you in a foot race, but, you know, it's arguable. But if I could, it's not because I exercise a lot. Like, I don't, I mean, I, I lift weights and stuff, but I do not run because I don't like running. Um, and so if it's just because I happen to have like longer legs, you shouldn't praise them because they didn't have to make any choices, right? In the same way that you don't blame somebody if they happen to kick over the bucket of fire and, and burn down the house because the doctor whacked them on the knee. They didn't choose it, right? So you should really only blame and praise people for what they choose. Therefore, a habituated virtue is more praiseworthy. Uh, that's an Aristotelian insight. And what, what Treherne seems to be doing in his Christian ethics, which I think is going to be controversial among more academically minded people. And there's a few points where he does some things that I think are controversial. And I try to put those in the footnotes so that people who are reading it aren't scandalized. Um, you know, he would be saying that, that 
you know, the habituated virtues are actually more praiseworthy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that he's saying that there aren't infused virtues. Okay. Uh, he's just saying, like, you know, so, I mean, the, the most generous reading that I can do of him, if I was trying to, like, be a Traherne stan, which I guess I have to be because nobody really knows this book, so if I'm not going to stan it, who will? <laughs> um you know, and I've got to do three more volumes of it. So if I'm not going to stand it, I should probably quit, you know, throw in the towel in the project off to somebody else. You know, it's a little bit like this. Imagine, you know, let's, I don't know, who's the worst person we can think of? Should we even name the worst person we can think of on your podcast? Is that, you know, is it, you, know. you know, if we want to have some fun, why not? All right. So let's imagine Hitler. Oh. Uh, I hear bad things about, about him. And I'm willing to go on record and saying I'm opposed to Hitler it's a brave stand in 2023, but I'm willing to do it. Uh, not many, not many are willing to go there on your podcast, but I will. Um, so Hitler's you are a bad so dude. Winsome. I, I hey, gotta admit, <laughs> I'm I'm the winsomest, uh, and you you heard it here first, James. Uh, that's James Wood for those of you who don't know. Inside baseball. Okay, so um, go A's. Um, the imagine that Hitler. Uh, you know, it's 1944. He's like, oh my gosh, guys. I've made a couple mistakes. This is not good. I, uh, I repent. I apologize. I'm now going to be a good Lutheran. And I'm no longer going to do all the horrible Hitler things I've been doing. I'm going to do good things. And he just lives his life. He goes back to being an artist. Um... Should you, and and what's happened is he's received faith, right? Mm-hmm. Faith has come to him. Okay, if that happens, should we praise him for that? Or should we continue to blame him for that which he has habituated himself to? It's a, I mean, so that's a tricky question, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I think that like if we, if we ch- switch the analogy, think of something else that's really horrible. Think about somebody who's got a, a really depraved sexual appetite right? Pedophile. Who knows? They come to faith. That might be a beautiful thing that thank God they're, they're, they're now going to go to war with their passions. They're committed. They recognize they've done some horrible things. You don't leave your kids with that guy. Yep. You know, you, you know, you still, there's a certain amount of prudence that you have to have around that. So that would be my defense of what Traherne is saying is that, um, you know, if, is that you still have, so to go back to Hitler, you still should, it's, it's perfectly appropriate as a Christian to sort of recognize the natural situation of who this person has habituated themselves into being. And you praise and blame them based upon that, not upon whether or not God has given them faith or not. That makes sense. Are there other infused virtues besides faith? Uh, I think faith, hope, and love, and then maybe humility, depending on who, which, which virtue ethicist, you know, Christian, Christian virtue ethicist you, you want to interact with, but faith, hope, and love are going to be the three major ones. Yeah. Cause yeah. humility doesn't feature at all in Aristotle, right? No, I mean, you know, humility is a great vice, uh, for Aristotle, yeah. but the argument that you then get into is, is what he means by, is what we mean by humility as Christians, the same thing as what he meant by humility you know, the traditional Christian Aristotelian answer is going to be no. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, we would say that when he talks about pride, which is sort of a, a proper appreciation of the self, is really what he's talking about, or a proper assessment of the self, is really know thyself, right? That's what he's saying. And so 
if I'm going to know myself and it turns out I'm really awesome, I should think, yeah, I'm pretty awesome, you know? It's, and and you shouldn't think of yourself as being more awesome than you are. Uh, similarly, if you're not awesome at something, you should be like, eh, I could use some work on that, you know? This is not the best version of me. Um, and so, you know, when a Christian is talking about humility, that that's one way of thinking about what humility is, right? Because... But the difference between the Aristotelian and the Christian sense, because Aristotle is going to call that pride or, you know, megalopsuchia, great soldness, and Christians are going to call it humility uh, or meekness. And the major difference is that Aristotle does not recognize the existence of a God who could be in a sort of relationship to us that might make us reassess ourselves. In other words, for Aristotle, the gods are so obviously distinct from us, we would never measure ourselves against them. And for the Christian, the awareness of God as something in relationship to us is supposed to keep us from sort of thinking that we're all that great. Yeah, that's interesting. Another question I have, and I'm a total novice in this area, so if you tell me that's like, You've Aren't totally... you? But you're like a, you're like a real academic, Jordan. Well, you know, I'm still a novice in, in some stuff, uh, a lot of stuff, and so I'm enough of an are, academic to are know you, that are I, you a to- aren't, aren't you like an Aquinas guy? I thought that's, I thought you're an Aquinas guy. You know, I, I'm Thomistic-ish. Uh, okay. You know, I, I, I like Aquinas, um, but I like okay. I'm a little eclectic to where I like to I like the Got medieval it. era and I like to you know explore everybody. Be like, okay, what's you get, going her, you get around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's nice. let's see what Skoda says. You know, I I, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, I like fancy. to live on the the edge, the dangerous. Um, Augustine, it seems to me, based on my reading, he would have some sort of like he anxiety almost toward the idea of you want to habituate yourself to virtue, and and what I'm trying to say there with that is to, it it almost seems like he's afraid that if you do something like if you're trying to habituate yourself to a virtue before you have it it's almost like hypocrisy of some sort Mm -hmm. yeah i mean he's you know he's gonna say that all you know and this is like this is a major distinction right so um it's funny like Traherne's not gonna fit easily with the reformers in a certain sense he's gonna fit with them really well in being like clearly rome is incorrect um but he is not gonna fit easily in that he, like, you know, for all that I love Martin Luther and to a slightly lesser extent, John Calvin, they really did have this sense of like, they're just so sinful. You know, they're just things are they're just so bad. And I, you know, they do get this from Augustine. I think that's fair. And, uh, you know, they're, there's a sense when you read the confessions, right? He's just so bad. And all of his attempts at virtue just kind of make him worse. You don't, you can't really get better at things. And that's true in an ontological sense. It's true in a very fundamental sense. I can't fix what's primarily wrong with me. But on another level, like, I can clearly get stronger if I go exercise three times a week. And I actually can get myself to go exercise three times a week. And I maybe I'm doing that from selfish and evil motives because I want to beat somebody up and take their lunch money or so whatever. But 
But you're still getting better. Something is happening there, and it seems to be an improvement, right? It's like it's slightly better to be the guy beating the guy up for the lunch money than have being the guy getting beat up for his lunch money. Everybody kind of knows that. Nobody wants to be the guy who's getting the lunch money taken from him. Has to go home and tell his dad, like, ah, they beat me up and took my lunch money. <laughs> you know, like that's not that's not who you want to be. Um, and so, you know, Treherne is gonna just he's gonna side with nature on this and and against um, this sort of vision of ourselves from from an ultimate perspective and uh and just in general right i mean when you read him he believes in the fall he doesn't think the fall didn't happen or anything but he tends to read nature as just being so great like and that's all nature so in in a certain sense people sometimes read him as being a pre or a proto-romantic so the romantic era of either philosophy or poetry does not come into being yet when he's writing. And yet you can see a certain hint of it in his writing because he just thinks life is so great. He's just like, he's dripping. His prose is dripping with this joy at the plentitude of getting to be in the world. And I, I find it extremely refreshing. So I kind of relate to it. Like I'm not, you know... When people ask me why I'm not a Roman Catholic, you know, I can just say Pope Francis and we can move on. Um, <laughs> you know, we don't have to like, I don't make a big deal about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ultimately on some level, I'm I'm a Protestant. I have, I have some arguments. I know some arguments. Um, but the real answer that I tend to give people is like, I never found... I was never in a intellectual or personal crisis where becoming a Roman Catholic was going to help my situation in any way, shape, or form. So I have been in intellectual and personal crises, and I always found the resources that I needed to get through those inside of Protestantism. As I've gone through my life, I've found some arguments that I think are pretty good for why you know I would deny the juridical you know claims of the papacy and other things like that. Um, and so Treherne, Treherne sort of strikes me in that way. Like, you know, your listeners, I think, are probably more like, you know, your average American evangelical or Protestant or whatever. You're not, they're not like mostly, you know, weird, creepy ACNA people or whatever. Um, <laughs> and so uh, just alienated all, all thousand of the ACNA people in the United States, um, uh, <clears throat> which is like weirdly most of Davenant's, you know, fan, fan base. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, so, so like... Treherne was is famous because he's an Anglican, but what what I mentioned in the introduction and most people don't know is like he was not actually like he was raised during the English Civil War. By the time he goes to college, Cromwell is running the country, and Brazenose is a prim primarily Puritan college inside of a mostly Anglican, uh, you know, college. It's a it's a it's a Puritan school inside of an Anglican college. And he's educated there, and all of these prominent Puritans write letters so that he can get a job as a Puritan pastor, and he goes and he works as a Puritan pastor for years until Cromwell is deposed and the king comes back, and then all of these colleges all of these colleges and all of the churches now become officially Anglican, and he's just like, Yeah, that's fine too. I'm happy to like <laughs> happy to just kind of go with the flow. But but he wrote, does write the one big book about why he's not a Roman Catholic. So he, you know, in that in that sense, I I very much relate to him. He he fits, I think, with a certain American ethos that's just kind of like, yeah, I can go to hot dog church and I could, you know, hey, I've worshipped at a, at a you know Lutheran Missouri Synod church and I've worshipped at an Anglican church, 
and I've worshipped in an OPC church, and I, you know, was raised in the UCC, and it's, you know, I can, I can make do. I, you know, the Lord, the Lord is big, and he's he's all over the place. Um, and I think Traherne has that same sense. So when he, again, that's why I led with he's a pastor, right? When he writes about what he's primarily supposed to be up to in his life, he he says I'm supposed to teach people about Jesus. Well, you've alienated all thousand ACNA, but now that you've called out Hot Dog Church, you've gotten really everybody that listens is now yeah. offended. What? No, but I said wasn't I being nice to Hot Dog Church? I guess I love Hot Dog Church. Maybe, maybe you were. Maybe I'll give you that. I, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just look. I, I have very good friends who are uh, who are some of my best friends are ACNA. Uh, love the ACNA. They're good people. I just am, I'm just, Traherne, I don't think would fit. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. He Actually, I disagree. I take it back. He would fit, but he wouldn't be like, oh, it's the AC, you know. And yeah. so there's just a, it's a certain subset, right? There's a type who's like, and actually my friend uh, who's a professor at Hillsdale, Mal Smith, who if your people are not yeah. following him on Twitter, they should definitely follow him. He writes at Fontes. He goes to an ACNA church. And I think he'd be the first person to sort of agree with me that, there's a kind of American Protestant who sort of gets into trad stuff and they like the smells and the bells and then they like are trying to kind of recover from their evangelical experience and process it and so they go join the AC in it. That's who I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I think Miles just said something like the, the like yesterday or something where it, the ACNA is kind of like almost the place where all the ex-Baptists go to deconstruct uh, their, mm -hmm. their stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if you want to deconstruct your faith and not become a heretic, you're like, I'm going to go hang out at the ACNA. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't, you know, Hey, let the ACNA people be them. Yeah, they're great. There, there's good stuff there. And, but you know, there's good stuff in the, in the Southern Baptist coalition. I believe it still, you know, in spite of coalition. Everything. I like that. Southern Baptist coalition sounds more, uh, aggressive than the Southern Baptist convention. Is that not what it is? It really called a convention? Yeah, it's really called a convention. I'm I'm clearly not a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of my, at, at the time of this recording, Miles, who, I, who is it that I shouldn't alienate on your podcast? Well, <laughs> you know, we can alienate everybody. That's that's the fun part here. Uh, we're 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 now at the end, pretty much the end of the episode. So if, if somebody's listened this far, they're committed <laughs> listeners, so they're not going to be alienated by what we say that's at this true. point. That's so true. So I always know I leave my hot takes for the end because I'm mm. like. All the haters, they don't listen that far. That's true. That's true. Unless they really hate you. And then they're doing <laughs> they're a hate look, Yeah, if they're looking for dirt on you, then they'll listen to the whole thing. That's right. But what are they going to do? I mean, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, so one one last thing I wanted to talk about on Traherne. Uh, powers and affections of the soul. Just give me like... Uh, a little bit of an idea of what's what's going on there in his mind as far as powers and affections of the soul. I think a lot of people probably have some sort of conceptual apparatus for things like, hey, we're going to break out the intellect and the will. We're going to potentially, you know, there's other ways to slice and dice some things. So just help me understand what Traherne's doing there. Yeah, so pow powers and affections of the soul, and, you know, powers are like just stuff you could do. And and affections are, are you know, how, how you're oriented into the world, how what you're what you're drawn to what you're drawn against and the, you know these things could be habituated it's, i mean that we don't want to we don't want to say that anymore but it's just true like i mean i remember not liking coffee you know when i was a kid and tomatoes i couldn't handle them now i'm like growing six tomato plants out front i would grow coffee plants if i could but they don't grow in oakland so uh i don't i don't have them 
Um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Treherne's just, he's trying to, like, this is the big picture case for the book, man. Treherne is trying really hard to understand the nature of the human condition and to write about it clearly and beautifully. And I, my, my case would be, I think he's doing that. Um, and, and also faithfully, he's trying to do it for, with a, with an eye to the, to the Christian faith. And, um, you know, so f- for example, you know, I, I often hear people talk about the, uh, the parts of the soul. They'll read C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. They'll then talk about the three parts of the soul, right? You got the intellective part yeah. and the thematic part and the desiring part. And, um, you know, the soul, properly speaking, has no parts. And so, uh, you know, Treherne's just valuable because it help, helps you sort of retune your language. Because you get this from one place and then you realize you got to sort of, you got to tune up your language. You got to, you know, tune up your categories. Soul doesn't have parts, it has powers. Mm. Um, and so you've got a certain intellectual power. You've got a certain competitive power. You've got a certain appetitive power. Um and, you know, we need to, we need to make sure that that language is, we, we, we want to make sure, again, this is the, this is where poetry comes back into it, right? We come full circle. You need to make sure your language actually fits the reality you're trying to talk about. Um, otherwise, like a rudder, right? As it might be off just by a little bit at the beginning, but you go on for a while and eventually you're going to begin starting to think your soul has parts, you know? And like, you, you know, if you really run with that, I mean, there are people out there who are going to try to argue your soul really does have parts. And like, you got to, you could replace, you could take one part out. You could put another part in, Jordan. And we can mix and match the parts, you know? Uh, well, there's plenty I... of people whose souls don't exist at all. There's no such sure. thing. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the best questions I ever got was from this guy who had studied with uh, Jacques Derrida for his PhD and, you know, shared an office for a little bit. And he turns to me one day, we're just like, I'm just grading or something and trying to get home. And he says, Colin, what is the soul? <laughs> and I was just like, damn it, I don't have an answer, man. It's like, it was not good. <laughs> I just wasn't ready for it, you know? Um, and I had read my Lewis. I'd read all this stuff. And I just wasn't, you know, it wasn't on the tip of my tongue. And I just had to be like, I don't know, I guess it's the, the Logos. But then, of course, you realize, you step away, like, for one second for the conversation. Like, that's insane, clearly the logos is not my soul yeah, otherwise yeah. i'm jesus yeah like that's the craziest this is exactly what they want you to say you know the damn gnostics <laughs> um so i got it wrong that day and then i said i'm gonna go study thomas Traherne until i get it right and that's that's how i got here and so thomas Traherne, this volume how many pages is it again i've forgotten you know we respect the reader's time that's what i say um it's like 125 pages 130 Dude. pages so that that's like idea like you can be a local church pastor and not be intimidated by that. I know most of you guys who listen to our stuff are like, give me that thousand page, you know, behemoth. But there's also the reality of, yeah, most of you guys aren't gonna actually read that. It just goes on the shelf. Volume that's hundred and twenty five pages, you can read that and you can share that with your friend and say, Read this with me. Yeah, I mean, it really is designed, you know, so it's it, I didn't just edit it, I modernized it. And so I went back into the not just the spelling, but also the syntax and occasionally the vocabulary. And I try to give notes where I make any change that I think is more than just, you know, a little, little something. But the goal is to bring it down to the writing level that the average, you know, 18 to to 20 year old is going to be able to read and understand with the goal that we could sort of sell these for, you know, nobody, if I, if I modernize the whole thing and put an introduction and critical notes in there, it's going to be a 500 page book. 
Um, if, if you publish that, maybe it's going to get a few dozen readers. The goal here is, and, and it's not about me, it's just about getting people to read Thomas Traherne. It's yeah. getting people to read the stuff that, if you want another C.S. Lewis in the next generation of American Christianity, um, you know, you got to get people reading the kind of stuff that Lewis was reading, not just reading Lewis. And if you want to get them reading it, you got to start them somewhere. And my goal is for this to be one of those on-ramps, right? Or as I say, it's a doorway. We've been scuttling yeah. in and out of doorways too tall for us. So let's stop scuttling. I'm trying to make a right-sized doorway for your people so that you can stand in it. You can sort of take some comfort in it. You can read it. You can feel like you understand it. And you can move forward from there. Man, well, this has been awesome. So, well, do if you guys are listening, as you know, there's like notes in the little podcast app you're listening to, wherever you're listening to. If you listen on Apple, which most of you guys do, I don't know why, but, you know, more power to you. There's going to be links there that you can click, and it'll take you directly to, I think, probably Davenant's site has these on sale. So I'll I'll link to Davenant. Um, sometimes I link to other places. You, you can get it on Amazon, too. Okay. So I I'll, think I think if you go to the Davenant website, it'll go directly to Amazon. Okay, well, then I'll just link directly to Amazon. So when you click it, it'll take you to Amazon. You can buy it there. Uh, support so that what one you're going to get great literature that's going to push you make you think all that kind of stuff but you're also going to support great ministry uh, in Davenant who's doing really really cool things we need more institutions like them uh, for the future of I don't am I allowed to say America because that's like nationalistic or something I don't know no you could say it so I like I like America yeah America starts with a and I support the A's <laughs> that's a good way to close it so thanks Colin this has been awesome as, as you guys know, this is the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.